Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn and I'm here with Matt Leach and this is part of our LA Adobe Mac series. We are in Sydney mm. and any of our regular listeners will know that the reason we're in Sydney doing these intros is we just didn't have time while we were over there. We were literally pulling people in, back corridors, all that kind of stuff to, to sort of make sure we got as much content as possible. Yeah, so Adobe Max was obviously in LA, so we were there for four days. We captured like 10 hours of audio content. I did the math. Um, and, <laughs> you know, and obviously we've been cutting it down since, so it's taken, taken a while to get it all out. Um, we are actually getting towards the end of our series. We've got one more after this about. And this was really exciting because uh, we had Mark Heaps on. Uh, I met Mark in 2016, I think. He actually came to Australia as part of Adobe Make It. Um, and you were super impressed with it because I – I had heard of his name, but I mm. didn't really know. And you were super impressed with him. And, and from that point, I started sort of following him. Yeah. And meeting him was a whole other thing. He yeah. is like seriously the nicest person that, you know, that we, that we could have sat down with. Yeah. Just yeah. so knowledgeable and just so many stories and has done so many like amazing things and worked at amazing companies. And Yeah. I mean, I don't think we got through the vast majority of your questions. Yeah. Because yeah, Matt, you know, obviously overprepares for a lot of this stuff. <laughs> and so sort of did his research. So I think we've got to make sure we talk about all this cool stuff. And we just went on all these really interesting tangents. So we probably could have done this episode about 10 other ways. I didn't even get to ask him why he cut his hair. Yeah. He used to have these really long, lovely locks. They were luscious. Yeah, and they're all gone. Yeah, and so obviously thanks to Adobe and HP for getting us out to LA um, for us to, you know, be part of that whole experience. It was life-changing for us. Like, it was amazing. And, and obviously we have the opportunity to bring back this content. I don't know whether it was life-changing. Well, maybe not for you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's been part of a big life change for me. But yeah, it was it was fantastic and it was great to connect again with Mark um, and sit down and do a podcast. We spoke about doing it two years ago and I just love these. I love actually getting the shit done and actually yep. doing things that, you know, you really want to do. Yeah. Um, and he was great and lovely and better than even I expected. Just nice that we're still around two years later. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. He would have laughed at our kit, I think, two years ago. I don't think we had the H6 and oh, the no, podcaster mics and all, all the- All plugged into a laptop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Part of the reason we are still here is because of our major sponsor, Streamtime. That's true. You like what I did there? Nice. So if you haven't tried Streamtime before, they are a man, project management software, really powerful one. I use it for everything that I do and it keeps me on track and makes sure like the invoices go out at the right time, that they follow it up on, all that kind of stuff, which is essential. Well, the app was really handy when we were on the road as yep. well. Um, so the, the iPhone app was super useful. Um, They've been amazing supporting us all year, um, you know, over, over there, over to Brisbane, all around Australia. It's been phenomenal and we, we love them and I think they still love us. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> um, definitely check them out. So if you're new to the podcast, streamtime.net um, and take a look. Let's jump in. Let's get into the episode. I'm Flynn and I'm here with Matt Leach and we're in LA. We are. This is still part of our series that we are recording in LA while we're at Adobe Max. Um, we're really excited to be here thanks to Adobe and uh, we're also talking a lot about HP and uh, we've managed to play with some of the Z books at the conference. It's You've been... managed to play with them. Yeah, that's right. I haven't. I haven't. Go... Today is my day. You're going to have a go today, yeah. which is good. Yeah. So thanks for the sponsorship. What, 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 what was it like? <laughs> it was really cool. Yeah, and chatting chatting to the team there about just t having this mobile station that you can take everywhere is is pretty cool. And we've seen a couple of the insiders with them as well. Is it as powerful as? They kind of make out. It was what I, what I used it for. Yeah, yeah. it was great. I'll, I'll interrupt your sponsorship too because uh, 
other than myself, my entire shop has converted to HP laptops. And oh, really? Ones. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I'm the only Mac guy left. <laughs> and how are you finding it? And they love it, man. They yeah. love it. Like the they've got the two in ones. I think it was the Spectre. So we're we're not on the Z book, but right. they um they love it. They they use it like a tablet. They flip it over. It's it's super light. And we work a lot of events, so um, we're constantly running around with it, sort of poised in our forearms, and you know, yeah, working at, literally as we walk with our clients. And uh, yeah, they love it. You know, and I, I have to admit, I'm a little jealous not having a touch screen because every once in a while I have to work on their stations. Yeah, and having my left hand pinch and zoom and do mobile gestures while I'm using a Wacom in my right hand is awesome. Yeah, we'd love to do that, like even for scrubbing and editing yeah. and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, super cool. There, there was that cool little thing that we saw. And we're, sorry, we're jumping straight into yeah, the episode, fine. but there was that cool little thing. It was like a dial. Um, on your keyboard. Oh, the is the Logitech dial. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So we, we we got so excited. We were like, yes, yes, yes. And like he said, uh, it doesn't work on the audio programs yet. And we we're like, ah, yeah, it doesn't work on Audition, which we use all the yeah. time. So. That's that's interesting. So my session last year was sponsored by Logitech, and they gave me those keyboards to give away. And after uh, Max was done, I immediately emailed them back and said, you've got to do these three things with the keyboard. And um, since then, I think I think five updates came out for the keyboard driver right before Max. And I've just been getting emails constantly like, we added that, we added that, we added that, please tell people. <laughs> so I know, I know they are listening to the community and finding out uh, where they should use it. Because it was ridiculous that I could be in Photoshop and with some of the tools, I would turn the dial and the tool has many options. And the only thing it would do is turn up the volume on my keyboard or right. my computer. And I'm like, this is useless. <laughs> and then they came back, they're like, no, no, we made it pressure sensitive now. I'm like, okay, cool. But yeah, it's a, it's a cool device. Nice. Um, and regular listeners of the show will know that we make our episodes thanks to Streamtime, which is really super powerful project management software. Um, so if you haven't checked it out, you can try it for free at streamtime.net. But let's get into our roadshow. Yes. So on this episode, we're joined by Mark Heaps. Now, Mark's a hard person to intro because he's a designer, technologist, photographer, strategist, refers to yourself as a, a synergist, which I really liked. Um, proud dad, uh, multi-instrumentalist, teacher, mentor. There's just so much. Have I missed anything? Uh, I love ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> really? I love ketchup. It's, yeah, it's, it's one of the things that um, when I, I couldn't write my first bio, I really struggled with it. And uh, so I actually hired a guy, a good friend of mine, Doug Neff, uh, to write it. And it was so good because he wrote all these like various po touch points. And then he goes, and always has a bottle of ketchup nearby. And I was like, do I put that in a bio? But that's <laughs> true. I love ketchup. Is it is it ketchup or is it condiments? No. Well, I do like condiments, but honestly, um, so the way that it goes back is that the classic American sandwich is peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Right. And when I was a little kid, uh, I had British parents and they would let me make my own food like very, very young. And so I, I couldn't reach the jelly on the top shelf. So literally as a toddler, I just saw another thing that was like the same color as strawberry jelly. And so I just made peanut butter and ketchup sandwiches. Wow. And uh, and then I just started putting ketchup on everything. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they used to get upset with me because then it just progressed into like ketchup on toast. And yeah, so it was everything. <laughs> <laughs> now in Australia, they uh, Heinz, who make our ketchup, mm -hmm. um, at one point did yellow ketchup and green ketchup. Yeah. Did they do that over here? They didn't. Um, there was a couple like stores uh, that you could find that. But here's the weird thing is since people have found out that I love ketchup, like people mail it to me now, oh, really? which is so weird. <laughs> but like, I guess in Germany, they had uh, like a black pepper ketchup. And then in, I think it was in the Philippines, they had a banana ketchup. They made wow. the, Instead of tomatoes, they actually make it with bananas. What was that like? Uh, I didn't like it. <laughs> um, but it was just interesting to see like how all these cultures have adopted this name. It's it's kind of like how 
you know, in, in Britain, they call Band-Aids plasters, but in America, we adopt the brand as the thing that it yeah. is. Yeah. And so we say, oh, it's Band-Aid. And it's like, well, that's a brand. It's a Kleenex. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, white out. So, yeah. So it's weird. Just people like ketchup is that thing now, even though it could be totally different type of condiment or sauce anywhere. Whereas when Jesus and I were, were working down in Mexico, uh, teaching down there, ketchup is salsa, but salsa is just sauce. Yeah. So it's just like every restaurant we went into, I'd say, oh, do you have ketchup? And they would bring me the condiment they think would complement the meal. So I actually never got classic tomato ketchup. I just got what they thought I should get. <laughs> so it was just weird. <laughs> oh, it's probably better. Yeah, yeah, get, yeah. yeah. Let you. them decide. <laughs> yeah, probably better for me health-wise. <laughs> now, you mentioned um, being young, and mm. I wanted to bring that up because you've, you've got a pretty amazing kind of backstory. Mm. Uh, I've heard you talk about this idea of like living like Richie Rich in the States mm. and then moving to a small English island and being at the working class end of the scale. Mm. It's also widely known that you started in the creative fields really early. Mm. But I guess I guess one thing that I haven't read very much about is why you were drawn to the creative industries. Yeah, um, it's interesting. You know, now I'm at this stage of life. I meet a lot of people who tell me these stories about, you know, they they got into design or art or some creative field after they'd worked at a restaurant for 10 years or they'd been a banker or they'd done all these other things, right? And uh, that that was never me. I remember because my dad owned a fairly large company when I was very little, I remember being probably six years old and someone telling me what a logo was. And I remember like drawing logos, literally at six years old, like my friends were coloring pictures of, of Transformers. And I was tracing the logos off of like the He-Man and Masters of the Universe. Mm. I never cared about drawing the characters. I always drew the type. I always drew the logos. I always traced these things that I saw. Album covers. Oh, album covers was huge, man. <laughs> I, I have I have two older brothers and... Um, uh, my oldest brother is 15 years older than me and he was a huge like Judas Priest Iron Maiden fan and so he would it's like nice type on those yeah ones. and he would yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah how many gradients can you cross yeah. um, but he would like sit me down and he would like put a record on and he would say right listen to this and of course back then that's what you did you just listened and you looked at the artwork and you read the lyrics yeah. and so I would get bored and I would sit there and I would trace the album art and then my other brother was um, more into bands like the Violent Femmes and the Beastie Boys and, and groups like that. And so, you know, album art was really like my first introduction into what I thought art truly was. You know, I'd never, I when I was very little, I lived on the border of Mississippi and Louisiana, and there's not an abundance of art galleries in that area uh, and definitely not contemporary art galleries. So to me, album art was like the first place I really got exposed to that. And, and, and weird flip on that, I now live in Austin, Texas, and one of the there's a guy named Stan Hope who was a, a really, really uh, famous illustrator in the '80s, and uh, he did album covers for just tons of bands from that era, mostly rock and metal bands. And I was just walking my dog in a park in Austin, and we sat down next to each other and just started talking. And I was like, "So, what? You're an illustrator?" And he starts telling me the albums he'd done. I was like, "Wow, I was tracing your artwork." Oh, wow. When I was wow. like a kid. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you ever want to come by and see like the drawings? Nah. And so we've become friends and <laughs> yeah. like we, we message each other and we hang out occasionally. It's crazy. It's totally crazy. So yeah, I, I you know, that I definitely, that was the early days starting out. But my dad also started his career as a, as a draftsman. And so drawing was always a big thing around. I remember that sort of 
impassing of knowledge that you classically hear from a father to a son. And for my brothers, they're they're big guys, right? I'm I'm the runt of the litter at 6'3", 220 pounds. <laughs> and um, they weld and they bend metal and they're like manly men, right? And I'm like, I want to make pretty pictures. Um, <laughs> but my dad would like sit me down and show me his compass. And I remember it was beautiful. He had a, a drafting table and he had this long, beautiful oak box that he'd gotten from uni. And he opened it up and there was all these like short compasses and long compasses and French curves. And I remember he would just let me play with them and let me draw. And, and you know, I think that was where I started realizing like, oh, the craft of this, the trade skill of this is a thing. It wasn't until I got much older that I started realizing creativity was a separate channel of this. But so you could be very technical and have zero creativity. Nobody has zero, but you guys get what I'm saying. So when those two worlds started to blend, that influence of culture from my brothers, at that time, MTV was a new thing, right? And so video was becoming a big thing and you were seeing graphics constantly. And then just that technical side that I saw my dad mature from and used in the shipbuilding industry, you know, that all just kind of blended together. And at what point did the, did you start picking up the computer? Yeah, I was a big nerd early. Right. Yeah. So, and that was hard. Um, you talked about the backstory a little bit. So, you know, my dad was really successful when I was a kid and we, we lived very comfortably in, in big house the whole bit. Right. But at one point that stopped and we lost everything. And so at that point, my parents decided to leave America, move back to England where they were from. And we had to literally start over from scratch. So, you know, you go from being the kid who's dad literally is like flying clients in and, and, and doing very well to suddenly, can I quickly borrow a piece of clothing from a neighbor so I have a uniform for school? Wow. Um, my mom went from diamond rings to working at a gas station, a petrol station uh, in England. And at night I would sit there with a Game Boy. And, you know, so, you know, computers were becoming a new thing at a consumer level at just by the timing of my age. But I really remember the start of it was, I think I was 12 or 13. And uh, in England, everyone was starting to get Spectrum 48K computers. Yeah. Um, my brother had had like a Texas Instruments computer before that. And I remember the first time I saw someone code and they could make like a word bigger on the screen and they mm. could make it blink colors. And to me, that was just magical because I was seeing things in my home being made that mirrored these terrible graphics on MTV. Right. And it was like, wow, this is exciting. And it just happened to be one of our neighbors was really into computer programming. And uh, he would let me go over to his house and he would show me things. And so that progressed eventually into me getting my first, what I considered my first real graphics computer, which was a Commodore Amiga. And you get programs on cassettes and load yep. them. But it had a program eventually called Deluxe Paint. And Deluxe Paint was amazing because you could paint with 256 colors and you could animate, I think it was like up to eight frames. Mm. And that opened up a whole world to me. The, the idea of drawing with pixels um, was amazing. And then I started making animations and there was a, you could plug it, you, you didn't have monitors back then, you plugged it into your TV. So I would route it through, um, <laughs> through a VHS right. and I would record cassettes. This is how I actually got, made my first money ever uh, as a creative, I guess. There were uh, karaoke companies in our town Oh, and, wow. and I would make <laughs> loop animations on my Commodore Amiga as like a 13, 14 year old. And then I would record it on these VHS tapes that they could play d between songs on karaoke's to loop. Wow. And so, yeah, I did terrible, <laughs> terrible graphics. Um, but it was a start, you know, and people would tell me that it was, I vividly remember one company called Karaoke Explosion. And they, uh, <clears throat> they had a name 
And I was like, oh, yeah, I should just make your letters explode. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> um, but that guy paid me like 20 pounds as a teenager in the yeah. early 90s. I, I was balling. It was like, I <laughs> I can go get new wheels for my board. I can go do anything right now. So it was great, you know, but that was the start, you know, it was wow. just playing with the computers to make graphics. And just talking about the kind of riches to rags story mm. that you have going there, has that, have you sort of reflected back on that? And has sure. that affected like the way that you run your business? And we're going to get to some business stuff later. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, first, that probably is what fueled a lot of my character as a kid because I was very angry about it. You don't understand when you're a kid what your parents are managing. No way could I, even today, understand what my mom and dad went through running a company with all these employees, you know, leaving a country they were very affluent in. By that point, my dad co-owned a shopping mall, car dealerships. I mean, and just suddenly our family had nothing. Mm. You know, literally like, when do we get to buy a car again? Mm. You know, why is, why is my mom working at a gas station? And, you know, and so... I was very angry. And at that time, as, as a kid, you know, you're taken away from all your friends, all your family. I, we moved to a small island off the coast of England. The, the island is like a mile across by seven miles long. So there's wow. not a lot to do, mm. right? There's a bridge to the mainland and you can get into town. But, you know, as a kid, it's like, wow, I have nothing to do. And so if, you know, like any, I, I guess, cliche or classic story of a creative, boredom, and frustration together will drive you to do something. Mm. And for me at that time, it started with just how do I express myself? I had stuff to get out. And so I, I just randomly started making art. I did a lot of exploration. I, I built a lot of sculptures. Um, and then right around that time, I discovered skateboarding. Yeah. And that community, you know, was kind of a, a current that was happening around the world. And it was hard to get access to a lot of those materials where we lived, but it, it did happen. And eventually there were some older guys that built a ramp in our local park and suddenly we had a community. And then I was seeing art on boards and t-shirts. Mm -hmm. And then I got introduced to the DIY movement. The DIY movement introduced me to bands, you know, that got me playing instruments that got me jamming with people. And then suddenly, you know, fast forward, I was being productive. And I was fueled. I was never like the fueled for the be the aggressive, you know, punk movement. It was just like I, I just didn't want to ever be bored again. Mm. That was what I feared the most. I think. Did you see um, some of the stuff uh, yesterday in Adobe Max? Questlove was talking about mm -hmm. that. He he said something very similar to what you just said then, um, where he said, even now we all need to take a moment to sit mm. and be bored because mm -hmm. that's when creativity hits like mm -hmm. that you need to we need to disconnect and yeah. he, i think he sort of says just sit there and stare at a wall and yeah just let it kind of come in he was talking about doing it once or twice a month yeah he said two days a month yeah. he completely he was like be in your pajamas sit at your couch you know and just just be mm. and and i'm learning that now i'm not great at it mm. but um his talk definitely resonated with me a lot but i I always find that uh, the more I do, the more they, if you're open to how you manage it, the more you interconnect your projects, your experiences, your clients, um, they influence one another. A lot of my clients have become friends because I'm very transparent about what I'm doing for one client versus another. And they'll be like, oh, we should meet them sometime and we're going to be in your town. We should all go to dinner. And, you know, and it's fascinating to, to see how things blend and bridge across. But, uh, you know, my greatest fear as a young creative was being bored. Mm. And now that I'm older, uh, people that follow me online, 
they see that like I go on road trips all the time. I did a road trip across America on my motorcycle last year where I was gone for three weeks on my own. Wow. I've I've taken my camper with my family out. We've nerded out our camper now. It's got like data and Wi-Fi in the camper. We've got <laughs> monitor, like it's crazy. And um, no, no, no more boredom. No, 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 no more boredom in the camper. You know, we work in the camper, but what happens a lot of the time is to get from point A to B, we have to drive for six or seven hours. Yeah. And because Texas is a big state, you got to get out of the state. Those moments of just sitting in the rhythm of the road is where I find yeah. that boredom and peace. Mm. You know, and I, I love that when I came to Australia, like you know, being in Cairns after we left Sydney and just driving up and down the coast. You know, everybody that I was there with was just like, "This is boring." I'm like, "This is heaven. <laughs> this is great. This is so good right now." So yeah. Do you want to bring up about being in Australia? Sure. Well, uh, that's where we met. Yeah, that um, is. Yeah. So yeah. so. Uh, yeah, we brought you across. Well, Adobe brought you across, and mm -hmm. then I got to meet you there, really. Um, but that was part of Adobe Make It, mm -hmm. um, which was really great. And so you were doing some workshops there. So mm -hmm. you did some workshops for us over there, and you're doing some workshops here. Mm -hmm. So there's two things I wanted to talk about. One is that you're clearly very experienced with doing this. It's almost it's a circuit, right? So, yeah, kind of. And yeah. so I just sort of wanted to find out, like, sort of how you got into that rhythm of the, you know, um, sort of public instruction. Mm. It's sort of thing. I don't know. It's quite it's quite different because it's like workshops there's talks there's panels and then there's this like learning the tools and learning yeah, the process sure. which i almost put into a completely different category so how did you get into that how do you get part of that circuit yeah that's that's a weird one and i know a lot of people come up to me after sessions and say i want to do what you do yeah i and think there were some people yeah. behind us in the line on the way to the bash that were talking about it yeah they were talking about creating online content and all this sort of stuff and they don't have a big enough following and but they yeah. want to do it more it's a bit weird, right? And so it's it's funny. A lady came up to me after my session yesterday. And so there are people that are professional instructors. They do the circuit, right? Right. And typically you see those guys are not only just teaching the sessions, but they're making products to sell because their brand is, their product is themselves, yeah. mm. right? And um, I've, I've got nothing that I really sell. To me, this kind of, I think it goes back to how did that experience of becoming a young creative, going through that transition of being an affluent family to to not. I have, it's, it's very strange. My wife doesn't understand it. I have this very strong compulsion that I want to mentor and help anybody that's trying to come up. It's why I, I've never said no to any interview. I've never said no to, I, I will do anything I can to help people come up. Um, it, I wouldn't be where I am if people hadn't done that for me. Have you still got the, uh, you had a f uh, photographic studio where- Yeah, yeah, we still have the like studio. Nothing. Yeah, we charge nothing. I have this big warehouse studio in Austin and we've got close to $20,000 worth of gear in there and we charge 20 bucks an hour. Yeah. And people can come use it, you know, as much as they want, as That's little awesome. as they want. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, this year has been really exciting because we moved into a new building and just in the last six months, photographers who literally picked up a camera in the last year We've had over nine major magazine covers shot there by oh, wow. them. Wow. And so it's like they tag us and uh, and I love that. You know, I love being up now I'm at a stage where I can like look at the stream on Instagram of things we get tagged in and go, Wow, it's cool. I didn't know you guys got that campaign or oh, I didn't know you got to do that ad and you know, and now it's it's moving beyond creatives. We're getting small business owners saying, hey, I just need lights and I'm going to shoot with my iPhone. Is that okay? And they ask for permission. Yeah. And I'm like, our tagline is create something. Like, just come create something. And so, yeah, sorry, I, I deviated there a bit. Yeah. But um, yeah, the whole professional speaker circuit thing, for me, I knew that's something I always wanted to do. The very first time I went to a conference, I went and saw, the very first one was Photoshop World. And I saw Scott Kelby come out on stage. And then I saw Russell Brown come out on stage. 
and just immediately went, whoa, this, this is the first thing I've seen that kind of hybridizes everything I do, mm. right? So as a musician and a performer, these guys are on stage in front of a crowd. Mm. And they're also mentoring and sharing knowledge. Like, this is really cool. And they're getting to make graphics. And they're getting to be creative. I'm like, this is literally all the pillars of my being, right? Like, this just completely grabbed me. Russell Brown, that first talk, get, literally on stage. You guys remember those overhead projectors in school where you oh, put yeah. the transparencies on them? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So he literally had one of those on stage. And he put sand on it. And he drew with his finger in the sand and told the history of the creation of Photoshop. And then it deviated into Star Wars. But it was... What, what was he wearing? Uh, you know, I think he was just wearing like a normal suit that really? time. Yeah, he wasn't like all character cosplayed out like yeah, normal. Yeah. So, yeah, so for those that don't know who Russell Brown is, yeah, he's... Yeah. I mean, he dressed up as Doc, wasn't he? Yeah, he was Doc, Doc yeah, yeah, from Back, Back to the, the Future from this Back year. Back to the Future, which was pretty And he's wild. famously... Uh, always dressing up as Salvador Dali. Yeah. That's kind of his thing. Mm. Um, yeah, him and I got to, uh, at the Creative Pro Conference in New Orleans this year, he decided to come a day early because he was giving a talk. And he asked me if I would host him um, to just go take photos. And so in New Orleans, I, I made arrangements with a local friend there. And we got access to this abandoned building. We brought fire dancers in. And he did this amazing photo shoot and editing all on his, his phone. On his phone. On his phone, yeah. So he shot literally like people dancing with fire. And you can see them on his Instagram. But yeah, they were twirling fire and we're at dusk. The light was horrible. We're using Luma cubes to light so they all fit in our pocket. <laughs> and then literally at dinner, he's like, oh, I'm going to move that fire over. And he was Photoshopping on his phone and moving things around. And it was, you know, you hear Adobe talking about like mobile is the future and creatives will work there. And then you hear like the old salty designers going, that's BS. Yeah. Like you're never going to be able to get away from a desktop. Like sure, that's fun and cute and do that. And I tell you what, that's the first time I saw someone work, you know, what I call from pop to post, the shutter through to the deliverable. Mm. And I watched him do that in record time and just went, oh, my God, I never have to be at a desk again. Wow. You know, now, sure, long-form document publishing design, things like that, yeah, sure, yeah. that's that's a ways away. But as far as, like, graphic creation, he totally proved me that day that you could do it. And he did it, you know, with a phone and less than $300 in lighting equipment with photos that I would absolutely sell and use on a client project. Um, so yeah, it was, it was amazing. Did he have access to any um, software that we, don't, that we don't have? That I don't know. Um, it looked like he was using uh, an array of like Photoshop Mix and some of the other things that are available on the store. Mm. Um, but there was there was a brief period where he went up to his room and then met me for dinner. <laughs> and uh, and he was still editing on the phone when we got down for dinner. He was like, do you like this here? I think I'm going to move this over here. And it was, I, I didn't get to see anything. But hey, he's Russell Brown, man. He's, yeah, there could be some. some he's he's, he's like, definitely on the inside track. <laughs> he's like employee number 10 at Adobe. You know, it's, mm. he's he's a lifer. So he's definitely got some, some access. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask him, um, when you're planning for those kind of that speaking and workshops, is mm -hmm. it different? Because you, you do a lot of teaching, a lot of mentoring. Is it, how is it different? In the way that you prepare for yeah. them? Yeah, so that's, you know, I actually never planned on being a teacher. Um, but I was lucky early on. I worked at an animation house and I needed extra money. And one day the producer from the animation house, we were, we were one of the first animation houses to do full episodic cartoons in Flash for the web. Um, everyone else was doing like little tidbit funny quirk and we were like you know episode 17 of this show and 
you know, we did all kinds of crazy things. But that guy said, hey, there's a local college in town that needs a Photoshop teacher. Their teacher literally just left mid semester. And so you should come over and meet the dean, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it was a very long story there, but I became a teacher. And that taught me how to write a curriculum. That taught me to start thinking about my students. A lot of guys who get into instruction, I think, have a wealth of knowledge and they want to pass on that knowledge and they forget what it was like to have been the student. Yep. So for me, the, the preparation starts with what would help them, right? I always start with like, what do I see designers doing? How do I, how do I understand what it's like to be a, a, a designer that's at that stage of their career? You know, I said earlier, I, I observe hundreds of designers a year, get to look tons of work and files. And I, and I, I take notes and I pattern like, wow, I consistently see nobody doing this. Mm. That's a thing that would help. So I, I do the research that way. I'm always fascinated by their influences as well. Mm. And that's the thing that seems to change for younger students. Mm. Is that their influences are completely different to my influences. Totally. And, and completely different to the class I taught two years ago. Mm. And I always think that's, always tell teachers to kind of work out what their influences are because that's how you can speak to them best. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, understanding your audience is, is definitely the key point and and i even joke now saying uh you know i can't understand what it's like to be a kid in the snapchat generation yeah you know i thought about getting it and then one of the younger designers that works with us is like you don't need snapchat <laughs> yeah you know and and they're probably right so it, it it's gonna get harder for me you know to be able to relate to them i think but i don't have to understand them i need to listen yeah right and that's the other thing is a lot of people that are on this circuit I think sort of take an authoritative approach like, oh, I'm here because I'm the authority on this subject mm -hmm. and you need to listen to me. And uh, I, I had a guy last year at Max when I taught and he said, hey, we do have that feature because I'd said, yeah, you know, I just wish we had this. And he goes, that exists. And in that moment, I realized I could have been like, oh, you know, divert, 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 like go to the next subject. You know, this guy embarrassed me in front of 400 people. Yeah. And I went, really? Where? And the guy's like, it's under, it's stupid. It's hidden under two menus. Go find it over here. And I was like, oh, wow. And literally in front of the class, we all learned. Mm -hmm. So the goal for me is at the end of that moment, it, it, they're going to forget that I looked stupid for a second. Mm -hmm. They're all going to remember that that tool existed, right? So for me, it's like just being willing to listen is, is the best preparation. And the other thing that I do is um, I share a lot of my class demos early with people and say, hey, do you find this valuable? And so... Um, I also worked at an agency for a long time that specialized in presentation design. Yep. And so that's been just drilled into me, like how to prepare for talks, how to prepare for presentations. You actually ran a conference about I presentation did. design. <laughs> I did. And we, and you know what? It's kind of blowing up. Yeah. Um, no. it, it, we didn't expect it. You know, the, the, the founders of creative pro week very graciously said, we'll let you have a day to add to the conference. And so the, the very first year uh, I presented the idea to them, they're like, okay, on, on a half day, we'll let you alone teach some presentation stuff. And I did that, and it got pretty good responses. I think we had like 30 people in the room. This year came around and said, hey, I want to do that again, but I want to bring in like industry bigs, guys that really love presentation design. And, and you have to be careful because people go, oh, PowerPoint. And you're like, well, the media, the tool is PowerPoint but that's not what presentation design is yeah. right and so like joe buckwald who designs uh with his team all the graphics you see at max like the keynote opening graphics all that he was our opening speaker and every single presenter that was at that conference 
called me and said, you know this audience, Mark, you speak to them a lot. How can I help? And every single one I sat down and helped them craft their talks. And so Joe's was like, I don't know if people are going to want to hear about these big presentations when most people are designing for a boardroom. And so that became the talk. Like, how do you take big ideas and translate them down to everyday presentations? And people loved it. Mm. And so, yeah, we had, um, we had about 120 people there all day. Um, and what type of people were there? Were they mostly designers or did you have salespeople or marketing Yeah, people? there was a little bit of that. But, you know, I, I'm going to use an abstract to describe them first. They're, they're people that feel underrepresented. We had so many, so many individuals come up to us and say, thank you for doing this. I, I'm a designer, but I feel like my community doesn't see me as a designer because I'm not doing web or UI. I'm not doing print. I'm, you know, I'm sort of, I'm not a media, like multimedia MoGraph person or video. I'm kind of in limbo. Right. And this is the first time I've seen someone say out loud, I care about design of presentations. I care about the uh, impact of visuals on an audience. And it's not an entertainment medium, right? So the, there was a lot of designers there, but most of them were people that work in comms departments at their orgs. So they're either sort of leaning towards being in a marketing department or they're on the sales support side where they're designing presentations for the salespeople. Yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you guys, this is a huge shift in our industry. Um, first, they're really hard to find for good ones. And the ones that are good get paid a lot. Mm. You know, companies like a lot of Fortune 100 companies that are out there have approached me and said, can you help us uh, craft our recruitment tools to find people like you and your wife? Yeah. Um, so a, a major company did that last year and said, we have no idea. We are struggling to find these people. And they worked with me. We built out kind of a recruiting toolkit. We we wrote the job descriptions for each tier level of, of this team. And they immediately found like nine people over the next three months. And those nine people alone are designing the presentations for enterprise accounts that are half a million dollars and above. Mm -hmm. So they get to build a presentation. And then when these guys bring the clients in, they're also designing the stuff that literally sits on the table in the meeting, the leave behinds, the takeaways. Oh, just like every touch point. Yeah. Every touch point. Yeah. And they get to own it. Mm -hmm. Do you know how many designers go to college thinking like, I want to do that. I want to do brand. I want to do packaging. I want to do that. But if I said a presentation designer is doing that, nobody would connect those dots. Absolutely. But yeah. that's what's happening at the highest level of this position. Mm -hmm. And at the lowest level, yeah, you're you're putting charts in a brand color. It's you know It's really interesting. Like it's something I hadn't quite it's hadn't something I hadn't quite considered, but it's definitely something I've seen is, you know, just the how many people because you might be very, very good at sales, but not necessarily right. You have ten years of graphic design experience to put that together. So you can look at it and say, I see what you're trying to get, but that is a busy yeah. busy slide that you've that you've got up there and doing all these kind of standard standard mistakes but then you look at some of the really fantastic brand design companies and advertising agencies yeah. and there are people that just pitch and create pitch decks all the time and it's so competitive and it is interesting taking that sort of thinking and putting it into yeah. professional you know corporate yeah i think steve jobs was probably one of the first people to really make public the idea that design thinking is extremely valuable you know that was sort of apple's culture and i worked at apple for a while you know, design thinking, the, the professional creative's viewpoint was extremely valued there. And two, three decades later, we're still seeing companies kind of latch onto that idea finally. Yeah. But it is happening. You know, the, the interesting part for me is our major clients 10, 15 years ago were Marcom managers. Now I've got clients whose titles are things like chief storytelling officer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating to me, right? We literally have a client right now that's that's her title. 
And she calls me, we were on one of our road trips and she called me and she's like, I just need to work this story out. Can I talk to you? And so my family's in the back of the truck and I'm driving with the camper and I'm like, yeah, we're on speakerphone. And she's telling us the story. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. How do you think that part's going to make people feel? She goes, well, I, I hope it makes them feel like this. And then I look at my wife and my wife's like, I didn't get that. And so we're consulting her on her story. And then we said, well, you could have that effect if this visual experience supported it. So sometimes it's the narrative, sometimes it's the design, sometimes it's thinking about how do you make people sit in the room? You know, are they sitting in rows like a traditional audience or do they sit in the round with you? Um, do you need to be at a podium or do you do this through like a secondary device experience? So this is like the new world for us. Mm, yeah. um, and I, and I, I think it's literally in its infancy right now. Um, people like Nancy Duarte, Gar Reynolds, Guy Kawasaki, they've talked about presentation design for well over 10, 15 years but it's finally reaching the trenches, right? It's, I, I often say it's like the soldiers are finally hearing the general's plan mm -hmm. and now they can go to war, right? Because they know what the potential is. That was why we did Click Conference. Mm. Click Conference was not supposed to be like other presentation conferences where people talk about story. We actually didn't do any story. We did everything about what is the impact on the audience of design. So as, this is how granular it got. My wife gave a talk there that was, 10 alternatives to bullets in a presentation. <laughs> and it got some of the highest ratings of the event because attendees that are working on these crappy presentations for their managers just went, that's something I can take back. You just gave me 10 ideas yeah. and taught me how to think differently about that content type. I can animate, I can do all this. So they, we got all kinds of feedback. Even now we get comments and emails saying, look what I did. To me, that's when I know we're being effective as an instructor. Yeah. Um, a young lady came up to me yesterday after my session at Max, and she said, hey, I came to your class last year, and I just want to show you something. And I showed her a better way to do this. Um, you guys have all seen it. It's the the type that has the 45-degree infinite drop shadow yeah, block right. thing okay. that goes yeah, off. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, and I see people building that in horrible ways in Illustrator. <laughs> and uh, I taught everyone how to do it in a couple seconds, and it's still editable type. And she goes, I want to show you your impact as, as an instructor on me, which I thought was beautiful. And I, and I hugged her for doing it because we don't hear that a lot. Um, but she showed me pictures of a campaign her agency did in Houston. And literally, they had done this type on buses. There was a 100-foot by like 40-foot banner on a building in the city. And she's like, that client did exactly what you said. They came to us last minute and changed text. And we had to rearrange things. And she goes, it, it, I didn't do any late nights, any weekend work. Mm. because you taught me how to do it right. So to me, it's like, yes. So that's kind of what we're trying to do with Click is how do we help people have ideas? How do we free them up from the stereotype of a bad presentation? I've got so much I want to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> Sorry. One, one quick one before, because I, I really want to jump into that, that type workshop yeah. you talked about um, and how Sensei may yeah, affect sure. that. But before we get there, you're in the car with your family mm. consulting. How mm -hmm. do you charge for that? Yeah, so th this is a thing that I talk about a lot now. Designers, it, my advice to every young designer or new, young is the wrong way to describe it, new designer at this point, because I've met a lot of people that are like in their 50s just getting into this field. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't advise people to charge by the hour anymore. I think it's a, it's a bad trap. You know, the first thing that I was taught about sales and, and having a dad who, you know, ran businesses was you, you, you're never the first person to throw out a number. 
it's kind of the classic sales thing. Like, so how much would this cost? Yeah. And if you go, oh, I'll do it for 500 bucks, you, you've already failed yeah. as a business person. You know, what you're supposed to do at that point is go, well, what's your budget? And they go, well, it's pretty healthy budget. And you're going to do this dance. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. What you shouldn't do is say, I'm $20 an hour. Yeah. Because at that point, it's it's completely out of context. So when a designer says, oh, my God, I can't believe how much you charge per hour, Mark. Right. Which my rate at this point is around 100 bucks an hour. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty transparent about that. But the difference is, is what I can do in an hour and yep. what a designer two years out of school can do in an hour, two totally different things, mm. right? Not saying better or worse. I'm saying just pure productivity. So it's hard to justify. And a client doesn't understand that. They see no. the label of designer. Yeah, I need a designer. I need a designer. Ooh, you're very expensive. Mm. And so what I tell everyone is you need to understand how to charge for your value. So you need to be talking to people about how much did that project cost, right? Clients also hate change of scope, you know, uh, processes on their on their invoices. Like, oh, you already burned all the budget and I got to charge you a little bit more. They don't want to deal with that because um, they have to go to someone and ask for more money and that makes them look bad. Yeah. So for me, it's like understand the value of the project, understand what that project would normally cost, and then also understand what is the value of it to them, right? Um, I, I regularly run into designers that are like, yeah, I'm struggling to to get paid to design this app and they're going to give me $2,000 to design it. And I'm like, this app has, you know, tier two level venture funding from, from venture capitalists. Literally, they're projecting this app is going to be worth $20 million at some mm. point in 10 years mm. and you can't get two grand. You are communicating your value completely wrong. And so for me, it's it's... It's got to be that you understand the value of your job. And you won't understand that unless you're working with other creatives who are either freelancers or if you're at an agency talking to the account managers and saying, how do we price things? How do we value things? How do you sell jobs? I was very aggressive when I worked at agencies going up to account managers and directors and saying, what's this account worth? How do we get there? I, I would want to know. They would give me a small job. This is, this is due in a week. So what are they paying for this? And some managers don't want to tell you that, yeah, yeah, right? Because then they're like, "Well, oh, you might be asking for a raise," or and that was never the case for me. I just said, "Look, I just I, I need the context in my head. Is this like a? I don't want to kill myself all weekend for something that we're my team isn't profiting from. Um, what's the strategy?" And that's when I started hearing about value. The account manager would tell me, "Well, yeah, we're not going to make anything on this one, but this keeps us in." the view of this client and yeah. I want us to be present and I want them to be aware of us insight in mind. And so that taught me a lot about, Hey, don't rob Peter to pay Paul, understand the big picture. And that, that was a turning point for me as a business person in creative. Now jumping back into what Sensei, cause obviously at Adobe max, we've seen loads of stuff that sense i can do and as a writer of curriculum and a teacher i've been sitting at the back going oh, wow that that whole class is pointless now because they can just do they can just <laughs> yeah do that happened button. to me <laughs> we, we, we also had the i think there was the was it in design the guy was up there saying he wrote a he wrote a book about this yeah. a couple of years ago and now it could all be condensed into oh, a paragraph yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah into one line <laughs> into one line and then he sort of showed a whole nother trick and he said and here's another sentence <laughs> that's kind of brutal isn't it yeah. you know like but yeah and particularly, like I know you've taught classes about how to, you know, retain type, but, mm -hmm. be, but be able to kind of, you know, do some crazy stuff with it. And one of the programs we saw in Sneaks right. 
was was a click of the button. Oh yeah, yeah. As soon as that one happened, you know, it, it, and it it couldn't have been more perfect. Literally, my class this year, my workshop was how to create very graphical type. You know, lots of appearance properties and why we should do that and what's the value. And then literally after that session, going to sneaks and watching them go, so you really like the look of that hand-painted type. So shoot it with your phone and it'll turn it into a glyph set for you. And I, I was like, ah, <laughs> great. Now, thankfully it was a sneak, so we probably won't see that for another year or two. Yeah. But it was just like, oh, why? And I started getting, my phone started going crazy because all my attendees knew my my username on Facebook and Twitter and everything. And so I'm just getting tag, 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 tag. It's like, thanks for the class. But I did have some reflection on that. Not even the AI part of it. When I first started, I remember when I first moved to Silicon Valley as a designer and I actually paid rent for probably the big portion of the first year I lived there on my own. Um, because an agency in town didn't understand Photoshop well enough to make clipping paths. And, you know, so back then you couldn't save transparencies. You had to actually had to draw a path around everything and save it as an EPS. And it was t- people don't understand today how hard it was to create graphics with transparent backgrounds back then. <laughs> I was actually, that was my specialty. Yeah. Uh, that was what I was good at. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of not needed anymore. Right. It, wow. it's, <laughs> that's exactly why th- I bring this to this topic, right? I paid rent making clipping paths. Yeah. That was it. They would hand me like 50 photos and say, cut these all out for us so we can use them in PageMaker or Quark. Yeah. Nobody does that anymore. Yeah. It just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, right? You don't need to do that in any project, but I'm still working. Mm. So, you know, I have that anxiety moment when I see AI sensei doing things that, you know, I've built decades of skill in. You know, when I see like them go, so yeah, you have a bad sky. So you ask Sensei to go get a new sky. And suddenly your picture has a great sky. And I have this like, first there's that punk rock kid in me that's like, don't trust the machine. Don't trust the system. You know, it's evil. It's Skynet. And then I'm like, wow, that's really, really cool. Crap. That would have been an hour of billable time for me. But Adobe's mission, I think, I'm not speaking for Adobe, my interpretation is when they say they're trying to free up creatives to be more creative, it's exactly that. They want to have us spending less time doing the methodical minutiae yeah. of production. So if you say, wow, this photo would look great with a sunset, then you ask Sensei to add a sunset and it does. This goes back to what I keep trying to explain to designers or creatives. Your value is in your idea, right? Mm-hmm execution can happen and this is why we see so many people like outsourcing production to like countries that are cheaper to have it made because they actually don't value the production that much or the process of the production the end result is what they care about but you can have a better idea a a better strategic position of concept and how you communicate than someone else so designers new designers today have to think a lot more about impact and messaging than they did when I started. When I started, it was like, okay, do some lockups, yeah. understand the Pantone book, how do separations work? Mm. Cool. You made stuff. Now people think stuff. And that's a big difference. And it's that kind of idea. That, so rather than thinking about the logo, you think about the campaign. Yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. So it's that it's we now have time to kind of go further. Yeah. And you hear designers all the time, that's their complaint to Adobe. This stuff takes too much time. I want it easier. And I and I I pause people sometimes when they say that. I go, well, part of the process of getting to think is the the methodology of working the production, 
right? You discover, you, we, we try to, Aaron Draplin always talks about like sketching or Von Glitch always talks about sketching their ideas out and the value of that still. Um, that process is what drives better ideas. So sometimes the production being slower is that uh, it's like training, right? Like you never see an athlete run with less weight. If they want to work out, they make it harder on themselves mm. and that makes them stronger. I think that's true of design muscle or creative thinking. It's like, I have to put myself through a process. The question I have for people is if AI or machine learning or sensei, whatever, is going to take away those restrictions, where are you going to find the limitations that force you to solve problems? Because the solution-driven experience is what gives us better ideas. So now how do I make it harder on myself? Not harder isn't painful, but maybe this is what Questlove was talking about, like make yourself bored, yeah, schedule you need that, that time. Resistance. You need that resistance. Yeah, you need that time to, yeah, absolutely. to, to work through stuff. Yeah, but I, to me, that's, um, that's really just getting to a place where, okay, what's the different position I'm going to? So believe me, designing a logo for uh, a major restaurant like, like we just did, sitting at my desk and having all the tools available to me, I was completely unproductive. I had every tool in the sun sitting in front of me at my desk and I couldn't come up with any ideas. I went to one of the busiest, noisiest bar restaurants in Austin and I sat there for four hours and I watched people and the noise of the restaurant and the I sat as close to the kitchen as I could and I sat there with a sketchbook uh, and drew and I doodled and I, I wrote down words that I heard people saying. Those words are now campaign elements on the wall of the new restaurant. Um, it inspired all kinds of ideas. Maybe that's where we're going, right? Mm. But to me, um, the tools making it easier didn't make us better. It's just I needed to figure out how to find my source now. Wow. Well, speaking about time, we're actually getting pretty close. We to okay, yes. so, yeah. There's so much we haven't talked about. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We'll need to do a part two sometime. Oh, yeah. we'll, get you, we'll get you back to Sydney sometime. That would we'll be awesome. Part two. Yeah. Because there's a whole section about working hard and, and workaholic. And oh, yeah. All that kind of stuff that we haven't done dug into but um i'm gonna be really really selfish because i'm about to start working with my wife oh <laughs> and you work with your wife i do top tips top tips for working with your partner so first we, we we work remotely right we work from home and that throws in its own challenges because you're not only working together but you're working together in your home so first decide if you can work in proximity of each other. That's the first tip we learned. <laughs> um, we don't have an, a shared space. Her office is on completely the other end of the house. We literally can't even talk to each other. Um, we have Amazon Echoes that we can chat with each other through, but we purposely put each other as far away as possible. Her design process is the opposite of mine. Um, we're, we are 180 degree different. So understand your proximity uh, to each other and the impact you have on each other when you work. Um, the other one is don't ever forget that it's your partner. I have a bad habit of turning into the business manager. And she's the CEO of our company. She formed it. I work for her. Um, so she's my boss. But I'm the strategist and the business manager. And so I tend to talk that way. And then I realize like, oh, I just came down on you pretty hard on how you communicated with that client. And now we have to go make dinner together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be really aware of, of how you collaborate. Um, would probably be, be the the other top tip. And then the third one I, I would say is nothing you do is ever more important than the love you have for that person. And I made that mistake early on. 
you know, there would be moments where I, I really knew she was having a hard day. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's great. We're going to deal with that later. We got to get this thing out for so-and-so. And I sacrificed a lot. And that's a bit of that workaholic uh, mm. ideology and, and coming up from the background that I grew up in. Today, I've literally told clients, I can't make that meeting tonight because you know what? It's just not a good time for my family. And if you can move customers to the position of partners, and I, I gave a whole talk at a university about this, um, uh, Bloomsburg University, I talked about this. At that point, your, your partners will understand that your family and your business are synergized. And so now if, if my wife needs time, I give her time. You know, and same for me. If she says, hey, you need to go on a road trip on your motorcycle, I'll handle the production with the team. So we have multiple designers that work with us. And she's like, I got this. And so that's trying to understand what you both need before what your company needs is extremely important. That's great that's advice. Bloody good advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. That does take us to time. Cool. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's always good to see you again, Flynn. And yeah. I hope I do get to come out to sitting and hang with you guys again. Absolutely. We'd love to have you back. And so people listening to the podcast, what's the best place to find you on the internet? Where would you like to point people? Oh, man. Uh, you know, again, I said earlier, I'm terrible about, uh, I don't have anything for sale or courses or anything like that. But I would say um, uh, if they're interested in my wacky life and stories on Instagram, I am at life by pixels. You can see a lot of what we're doing behind the scenes with our clients, projects, events, the road trips that we work on. Um, there's also now a Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash life by pixels. And so I do contests and giveaways there. A lot of time there people message me and say, how do you do this technique? And I'll make a very quick two minute video tutorial. It's low budget production kind of screen grab, but I, I just want to solve problems for people. And then if it's industry related news, you know, I, I'm probably a few degrees separation away from the people at Adobe and announcements that I think a lot of people in the field miss. Mm. Um, I always rebroadcast those things on my Twitter account, which is at Life by Pixels as well. So one of those three is probably the best way to um, engage. Fantastic. And any listeners um, that are more interested because Seriously, we we hardly got through anything that we went to. <laughs> I talk too much. But there's some, uh, you've recently done some really good podcasts with other um, mm. podcasting um, crews, um, which we've we've tried to keep away from all that stuff. So if they want to go and dig deeper, they, they can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's some other stuff out there. Um, I just did the He Shoot, He Draws podcast, uh, Voices of Impact, uh, a few others. Um, Self-Made Man, I have a video on there. So yeah, there's 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 quite a few out there. Fantastic. And Matt, where can people find you? Matt underscore Leach. See some circles. See some circles on your Instagram page. Um, I'm at Flynn Tracy on just about everything. And you can find this episode of more at ausdesignradio.com. And you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud at AUSDesignRadio. Thanks, Mark. Thank Thanks you. Thanks very much, guys. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.